BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we make sense of the constantly shifting developments on the situation in Ukraine and relations between Russia and the West with former Ukraine ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer. Then, Writer Gish Jen joins us. Her newest work of fiction is a collection of chronological interrelated short stories about the impact of President Nixon's historic trip to China 50 years ago to normalize relations and what Jen calls the surreal changes that China has undergone since. It's titled, Thank You, Mr. Nixon. That's all next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President Biden is hosting a call today with European leaders in a last-minute effort to stave off a Russian attack on Ukraine. Russia continues to amass troops near the border, and strikes are escalating in the Donbas region in eastern Ukraine in an ongoing conflict between Ukrainian government forces and Russian-backed separatists. To better understand the situation right now, we're joined by Stephen Pfeiffer, William Perry Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford, also former ambassador to Ukraine and a senior director at the National Security Council in the Clinton administration. Ambassador Pfeiffer, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. And as always, listeners, you can weigh in by emailing your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org or getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. So, Ambassador Pfeiffer, President Biden said yesterday that he believes Russia will attack Ukraine within the next several days. Before we get into what the increased shelling we've just seen in eastern Ukraine means, I do want to back up a little bit and ask if you could just remind our listeners what Vladimir Putin believes he will accomplish by invading Ukraine. Well, I believe that Mr. Putin would like to try to pull Ukraine back into Moscow's orbit, into a Russian sphere of influence. But if you look at Russian policy over the last eight years, the seizure of Crimea, and then the instigation and continuation of a conflict in Donbass in eastern Ukraine that's claimed some 14,000 lives, nothing has done more to push Ukraine away from Russia and towards the West than Russian policy. So Mr. Putin's policy of the past eight years has been self-defeating. Uh, and it does not see, it's hard to see how a military attack on Ukraine 
is going to change that. Hmm. And why is Russia so worried about a Ukraine turning to the West? Well, the fear is it's on different levels. You know, one is that Ukraine might be a member of NATO. That's their professed concern. Hmm. Uh, but there really is no enthusiasm within NATO for putting Ukraine on a membership track at this point in time. But I think the deeper fear in the Kremlin is that if Ukraine develops as a westward-oriented, successful uh, state with a consolidated democratic institutions, it's already a very democratic society, but also if they get the economy right. So a successful Ukraine of that kind is a threat to the Kremlin because it could cause the Russian people to ask, why can't we have the same political voice, the same democratic uh, uh, governments, governance that they have in Ukraine? So it really, I think, in some level is about regime survival for the Kremlin. Hmm. So even though Putin is certainly making this all about his issues with NATO, this is really all about Ukraine, in your view? This is as much or more about Ukraine. I mean, the, the Russians say uh, they're unhappy about NATO enlargement. The last NATO member that borders on Russia to join the alliance joins in 2004. So why are we having this crisis now 18 years later? Well, U.S. and NATO leaders have warned that Russia may use you know, increased shelling and escalation in the Donbass region as further pretext for an attack. Given the escalation that we are seeing there now, what is the likelihood of a diplomatic solution at this point? It feels like time is running out. I mean, I think you're right. The, the time does seem to be getting short. The Kremlin has left the door ajar for a diplomatic off-ramp out of this crisis. Uh, but thus far, they seem to be stressing when they talk about diplomacy demands such as that NATO forever uh, renounce any further enlargement or that NATO withdraw forces, relatively small forces that have been deployed on the territory of the countries that joined the alliance after 1997. And the Russians know that NATO is not going to meet those demands. NATO instead has offered a package of arms control and risk reduction measures, which actually could contribute in a genuine way to security between NATO and Russia. But it's not clear that Russians are going to pick that up. And the other alternate, of course, would be that the Russians do, as the administration fears, launch a major military attack on Ukraine. How do you think this is going to end? Um, it's a, it, it really depends on uh, one man, and we're trying to read Vladimir Putin's mind. Certainly, what you hear from Washington and from NATO is a great deal of alarm, and American officials say the same thing in private because of this huge massing of Russian forces in occupied Crimea, on uh, Ukraine's east, in Belarus to the north. They have multiple attack quarters into Ukraine and over 150,000 troops. So I think there is a lot of concern that the Russians might well choose that option, along with a hope that we can somehow find a way to steer the Russians to a diplomatic path. We're talking with Steve Pfeiffer, William Perry Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. Stephen Pfeiffer is also a former ambassador to Ukraine. And we've got calls coming in. Let me bring Robert into the conversation. Robert in Concord, join us. Yes, uh, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, why doesn't uh, Ukraine explore or declare its neutrality? Uh, uh, NATO is joined by people asking to, to get into NATO. No one forces NATO to be uh, to, for them to get into NATO. Uh, by with neutrality, that would take the, the steam out of uh, the Russians' effort. 
uh, and uh, really uh, uh, put them Ukraine on an opportunity to maybe at a later date join the EU. Mm. Uh, it's worked well for Finland so far, uh, Austria, Switzerland, Sweden. Why don't they explore that oppor- that possibility? Robert, thanks. Ambassador Piper? I'm not sure neutrality would solve the issue and would fully address what Russia has in mind. Remember, if you go back to 2013, at that point in time, the Ukrainian government wanted a cooperative relationship with NATO, but it was not talking about membership. And it was, though, on the verge of concluding an association agreement with the European Union. And all of a sudden, the Russians begin applying great pressure on the government in Kyiv not to do that. And ultimately, the Ukrainian government's decision not to sign the association agreement triggered the Maidan revolution that brought it down. Uh, So I don't think that there's an alternative for Ukraine of saying we're going to be neutral with regards to NATO, but we want to go towards the European Union. I don't believe that's acceptable in Moscow. But it's also politically very difficult now. If you went back, say, 10 years ago, the polls would show maybe 20% of Ukrainians would support the idea of Ukraine joining NATO. There was a poll that came out yesterday that said 62% of those polled in Ukraine wanted to see Ukraine in NATO. And that's a result of, again, being under this low-intensity conflict that the Russians have inflicted on them, the seizure of Crimea, and the ongoing conflict in Donbass. Well, Ambassador Piper, you were talking about the troops amassing. And if, if, we, if we do see a Russian attack, what form and scale do you think this would take? Like, would an invasion extend to the capital, Kiev? Um, I think this is a concern. I mean, my guess is in the first phase where the Russians do really overmatch the Ukrainians is in the area of air power. Uh, But if there is a ground invasion, the Russians over the last three or four weeks have deployed about 30,000 troops in Belarus. It's less than two hours driving time from Belarus to the capital of Kiev. I've basically driven that when I was there 20 years ago. Uh, So it's not very far off. And there is a concern, again, that... uh, one of the reasons I believe that the United States made the difficult decision to relocate the skeleton staff at the embassy in Kyiv to Lviv in Western Ukraine was their concern that there might well be a Russian plan to go after the capital. And what would this mean for Ukrainians, for ordinary Ukrainians? Yeah, this I was in Kyiv about two and a half weeks ago, and I guess the biggest impression I brought back was they are really determined. Uh, The Ukrainian military, even though it's going to be outmatched by the Russians, will fight. But it's also civilians. Um, You know, you talk to people and they say, what if the Russians come in? They say, I'm going to get a gun and I'm going to go fight for my country. Uh, I talked to a friend 10 days ago in Kiev, and she said that at that point in time in the capital, there was a two week waiting list for civilians who wanted to get small arms training. I'm not sure the Russians or that the Kremlin understands just how much animosity there is in Ukraine, not towards Russian people, but towards the Russian government. And if they were to go into Ukraine, they would have to deal not only with the Ukrainian military, but I do believe that they would find themselves engaged in a significant guerrilla campaign. Hmm. Well, what, what tools do the U.S. and NATO have either to curb or, if this happens, to punish increasingly painful sanctions, I assume, is one, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, the United States and NATO have made clear uh, that they're not going to use their military force to enter Ukraine and defend Ukraine. So there have been deployments by the United States, by the British, the French, the Germans, and others 
to NATO's eastern flank to make clear to the Russians that while NATO won't fight for Ukraine, NATO will certainly defend NATO territory. But there have also been discussions going on now for over two months between the United States and the European Union. And I'm told by U.S. officials that if the Russian military crosses the line into Ukraine, very, very quickly, there will be very harsh sanctions imposed. And it won't be like in 2014, where they were done gradually. Those sanctions will be imposed all at once to have maximum impact. Moreover, you would see an increase in the number of arms and defensive supplies flowing from Western countries into Ukraine to better enable the Ukrainians to defend themselves. What do you... Yeah, sorry, go right ahead. Yeah, the real cost to Russia, though, will be imposed by the the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian guerrillas. This would be a tragedy for Ukraine, but I think it's also going to be a tragedy for a lot of Russian families because a lot of Russian soldiers are going to go home in body bags if if the Kremlin makes the mistake of launching that attack. And do you feel like the Kremlin is underestimating this, that they don't really understand this about Ukraine? I worry that uh, in Mr. Putin's inner circle, they don't fully understand Ukraine. And I'll give you one example. For the last seven or eight years, including into this very lengthy essay that that he published last summer, Mr. Putin talks about Russians and Ukrainians as one people. To a lot of ethnic Ukrainians, what they hear is, you've just denied my culture, my language, my history. It's a really tone-deaf thing to say. And I, I, he says it so much, I really do question whether he fully under, uh, understands the impact of those words on Ukrainians. Well, Ambassador Pfeiffer, I really appreciate you providing this context for us as we watch, very concerned, by what's happening. And we have just 30 seconds left. If there are any final thoughts that you think our listeners need to understand about this conflict and how the U.S. is handling it. Yeah, I think the administration is handling this conflict fairly well. They've laid out the costs. They've also worked with allies to establish a diplomatic path out of it if the Kremlin wishes to take it. But I think the thing to understand is um, if the Russians do attack Ukraine, uh, they've not been provoked. Uh, This is not a war of necessity. This would be a war that Vladimir Putin chose to conduct. Former Ambassador to Ukraine, Stephen Pfeiffer, William Perry Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. Thank you. Thank you. And we will have more of Forum right after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.